be in uh, Luke chapter 23 to begin. We took a, seven weeks off of our study that we've been doing about the commands of the Lord where it says in Matthew and the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And we'll be back with that next week. But in those seven weeks surrounding Easter, uh, we talked about the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. And this morning, we've come to the final saying, and it's found here within Luke chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 32. Luke 23 and 32. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here we find the very first saying of Christ from the cross. Remember, we told you that Jesus, while on the cross, didn't preach a long sermon, didn't do a lot of talking, because the death of the cross was not from pain or from loss of blood, but it was from asphyxiation, because the, as they hang there, their pictorial muscles begin to uh, be overtaxed. And to be able to breathe, they're going to have to push up uh, and take a breath and then release that. And uh, I remember to quicken the death, they came along and broke the legs of the other two malefactors and they could no longer push up and they would die. There's, history tells us that some men would live on the cross for days before they died, uh, just fighting and pushing up. And so these are very short sayings. And the first saying here, as we saw, is in 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ and the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. And the other answered and rebuked him, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest to thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And we find the second saying from the cross. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said thus, he gave up the ghost. In between those, we find in the book of John that he said, Woman, behold thy son. And to the son, to, to John, he said, Behold thy mother, putting the care of his mother in John's hands. We find that in between that, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. 
which is interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said, I thirst, in John 19. And following I thirst, he said, It is finished. And Brother Chris taught that last week. He didn't say, I am finished, but he said, It is finished, the work of redemption being spoken of. And then this morning, there in verse 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. These the words, uh, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, have been on the lips of many a dying man following this example. Polycarp, one of the early, early church uh, leaders or church preachers, uh, said it. Augustine said it. John Huss, Christopher Columbus, all were reported to have said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The very first recording of something like that is in the book of Psalms where it says, into thy hand I commit my spirit, Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And the only difference between Psalm 31 and then the fulfillment of that here in this passage is that in Psalms 31, he's coming to the Lord for salvation and he says, Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. But here he comes with salvation. Now, let's just look at this, these words here. The first thing that dramatically pops out at us in this passage is that Jesus gave his life and it wasn't taken from him. He says, into thy hands commend my spirit. He didn't lose it. It wasn't taken from him. Neither did he take his own life in some suicidal act, uh, but he simply gave it up. And that's not, that's not possible for a human just to, I, I, want, I, des, I have willed and decide I'm going to die and, and die. Uh, the words are that he gave up the ghost or gave up his spirit. Matthew says that when he cried, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. And so, yield, when he uses that term, yielding up, it has the idea of the act of the will, as I said. It has the idea of sending it away. As Jesus said of his death to come, he said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so, when we consider Christ and the, and the death on the cross, uh, don't, uh, don't have some kind of martyr mentality. Although he was, he was treated badly, and those that treated him badly will, would eventually, are going to eventually answer for it. Remember, he said that he could have called a, a whole legion of angels to take him down. So it wasn't as though he was out of control. If you look over in the book of John chapter 18, in John chapter 18 and verse 1, 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the book Kidron, which was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a, a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto him, Whom seek ye? Uh, there's lots going on here, and uh, just let me touch on it. When Jesus left and crossed the book Kidron, remember that uh, Jesus celebrated the Passover, but then the day, late, day later, he's going to be uh, crucified at the very moment of the Passover lamb being killed. And so did Jesus celebrate the Passover in an untimely way? Well, no, because the, because the Jews in the, nor, in, the south, in the northern area of Israel, they celebrated the day from sunup to sunup. And the southern part was from sundown to sundown was the day. And that allowed for the, the Passover to take place on two different days, really beneficial for all the lambs that were being killed. And so when Jesus was celebrating the Passover, he wasn't celebrating and breaking the time schedule that the Bible has, but he was celebrating with the northern Jews. And, and they'd come to Jerusalem with their lambs or bought a lamb and they're being sacrificed. And there in the temple area, a stream had been diverted to go by the altar and wash the blood away as it, as it pooled there. And it's going to run down the hill and into the brook Kidron. And so as Jesus is going forth that night, he comes to the brook Kidron. And as he sees it, he sees the blood flowing. And no doubt, I would suspect that he was thinking about what was shortly going to happen to him. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Gethsemane means the olive press. He's going to be pressed there, remember? He's going to pray, and he's going to sweat as though great drops of blood. It says here, he says uh, 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 in 18, in verse 3, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? The reason he did that is if he could, if he could get the soldiers to say exactly who they were seeking, which was himself, then that would clear all of his disciples. If they said, we're seeking Jesus Christ and all his disciples, that would have been something different. But when Jesus said that, he's forcing them to state exactly what they're after, and his disciples are going to be spared. Then answered him, Jesus, then answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am, and note the word he is in italics, given not in the, not in the original writing, but given to help us understand is added for our benefit. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Well, what's going on here? Well, I am 
When Jesus identified, when God identified himself from the burning bush, he said, I am that I am. I'm the self-existing one. I am the eternal one. And when Jesus saw these disciples, I mean, he saw these soldiers, it seemed like they were all lined up one behind another. And when he simply said, I am, they all fell backwards. Well, why was that? Was it just being, you know, Abbott and Costello? No. When he said, I am, there was tremendous power in that, in that. And all I'm simply saying is this. That Jesus at any moment could have come down from the cross. He was I am. But he gave himself willfully. When they came to arrest him, Peter pulled out his sword, cut off the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus said, thinkest, not, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father? And he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. And so our point is that in these final words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he is doing this willfully. That Jesus, even in this moment, is in uh, control. Jesus willingly from that point goes to a mock trial. Very illegal. You shouldn't have trials at night. You don't receive any accusation, which is not by two or three witnesses. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragedy. But he willingly goes to the trial. He willingly walks Golgotha's road. And you'll see here in uh, Matthew 27, I think it mentions this in other Gospels too, but look with me in Matthew chapter 27. We don't see Jesus here, uh, we don't see him just kind of, you know, his life ebbing and flowing and, and uh, he getting weaker and weaker and, and uh, just at the point where he can speak something, maybe he has been, been revised and he gets strength. It's not a picture of just gradually dropping drop and uh, dropping down and the breath getting more shallow and shallow and as we would anticipate in a normal death. But you'll see here in Matthew 27 and verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that I say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so it, it was a, a, a loud voice. And again, down in verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, gave up the ghost. And so it's not as though they're taking his life from him. He's still very much aware. He's still very strong in his voice. And it's not as though he's, he's slipping away. Look in John chapter 19. The point, you know, the major point of all of what I'm trying to get at here is that when Jesus went to the cross, 
He died for you willingly. John 19 and verse 31. The Jews therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that it was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and this is the record is true, and he knoweth that he saith is true, that he might believe. For these things were done that the scriptures might be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. Well, he's surprised. The soldiers is surprised that Jesus was so soon dead. They pierced his side to make sure that he was dead. And, and when, when they go and tell Pilate, Pilate is, uh, is, is surprised also. Mark says, and now when the evening was come, because it was a preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph Armathia, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. Well, why, why all the stir? Because he didn't die like a normal man. He gave his life. He commended his spirit unto God the Father. He had control of his life up until the very time that his spirit left him. John 10 and 30, uh, John 19 and 30 said, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed the head and gave up the ghost. Now that's interesting. When Jesus, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And we know that next to follow is the words, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, when people die, especially if they're kind of propped up instead of laying flat, but even when they're laying flat, when people are getting close to death and they die, it is not, uh, I know all people don't die the same way, but uh, this is one of the normal ways it happens. And it's not pretty to watch. When a person is getting close to death, he's constantly raising his head and trying to get a big breath of air. He raised his head. Very few just slump and it's, it's done. Sometimes, you know, if they've been shot and loss of blood, but when they're, when they're wanting to, you see there's the, uh, the, the part of our brain that controls breathing is, is in, the, in the back of the brain, in the cortex there. And it's going to fight to the end to try to get air and to breathe. It's just normal for the body to, to fight for air and try to... <sighs> Well, Jesus didn't do that. He just bowed his head. And he gave up the ghost. 
in the book of the Sermon on the Cross, Vantizo Stutfen had this to say. It's, physiologically, it's, a, it's a physiological fact that a dying person, particularly if he happens to lie in a half-reclining posture, invariably raises his head at the final moment, or at least attempts to do so. It is nature's last effort to fill the lungs with the life-giving oxygen. The heart ceases to beat, and the head falls upon the breast, not until then. But Jesus bowed his head before he died. He died clear intimation that he consciously and purposely rendered up his life. Well, again, what's the point? If Jesus' life was not taken from him, if Jesus gave up the ghost, then why? Why? Well, Romans says, But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's only one reason why he allowed himself to die that way. There's only one reason he gave his life. And that is because Christ died for us. Peter says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. First John says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. Go over to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. What a tremendous passage, and there's a big movement today to get a little booklet about Isaiah 53 in the hands of as many Jewish people as possible. But Isaiah 53 talks about him bearing our sins and griefs, carried our sorrows. But look what it says in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah God, to bruise him. Who? Christ. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He, that is Jehovah God, shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here God the Father is pleased to bruise God the Son. He sees the travail of his soul and is satisfied. And God the Son is willing to be bruised. And God the Son is willing to go through the travail. Why? What was this all about? 
Well, if you look in John chapter 3 and verse 36, it says those that believe, it talks about, and then those that don't, it says the wrath of God abides upon them. And what is being pleased here is that God's wrath is being propitiated. God's wrath is being appeased. And, and the reason that he gave up the ghost, the reason that he allowed himself to do this, there's only one reason. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, uh, we don't really understand the love of God until we understand the wrath of God. We don't really appreciate what Jesus did until we come to the place where we realize how evil we are and what the cost of sin is. But God, in demonstrating his love to us, so this is, if you want a demonstration of love, if you want a picture of love, if you want a definition of love, look at the cross. And that's why he says here that uh, he gave up the ghost. Now, it's kind of interesting as you look at this giving up the ghost, and look at the other sayings from the cross. The first saying that we noted in this series was when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so in the, in the first saying, he addresses, he addresses the Father. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the second saying, the second saying, uh, Jesus Jesus addresses the repentant thief. And he tells him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And the third saying is to his mother, woman. Notice, notice that he called her woman and not mother. The Bible never emphasizes the, the motherhood of Jesus and, you know, that Mary is our mediator between, you know, mediator between us and Jesus and Mary can get to him and he can, but no, he calls her woman. It's because uh, Mary, you remember in Mary's, the Magnificent, they call it the, the song that Mary sang, she rejoiced in God her Savior, that she needed a Savior. And then we have, we have something happening here. Eli, Eli, this for sake of time, I won't write it out. Eli, Eli, and here, what I want you to see is, he says, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, that no longer does he call him father. When he addresses him, he said, Father, why did you forsake me? But he addresses him now as God. Because something's taking place here in the scenario of what's happening. 
And that is, Jesus has taken on a different uh, station. I don't know if that's a good word for it. Jesus now has become sin for us. He who knew no sin has become sin for us, and God the Father forsakes him. And then he's going to say, I thirst. Not only from the loss of blood, biologically, but he's going to thirst for the fellowship with God. My soul, David talks about thirsts for God. Well, he thirsted for God. There was no, there was no closeness. You no, know, I and my father are one, he, he said. But now, that's not the case. He thirsts because of, uh, no doubt, the torment that he's going to face in being three days and three nights in the earth. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then, and then he says, it is finished. Just a general statement. But then when we get to the seventh verse, we get back. <coughs> where he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The fellowship has been restored between the Father and the Son. Why? Because the payment has been in full. There's nothing that separates them anymore. So that word Father, it ought to speak peace to our soul because we know that now that he's accepted with God as our representative, that that our sins have been paid for. That fellowship has been restored. And so not only do we see in this, I commend you my spirit, that Christ gave up his life, and that he's restored in his relationship with the Father, but we also see the great value of the soul I commend my spirit. He did not say, into thy hands I commend my body. But he said, I commend my spirit. I think we find here something that helps us understand the value of the soul. That this body is only a house for the soul. The other night when I preached in prison, I began by saying that what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And talked about the possibility of finding a gold mine in Alaska and, and it's the richest of all gold mines and is able to buy up the North Slope oil and with Alaska gold and oil and amass your wealth until you control Alaska and you move it on down and control Canada and eventually the lower 48 and, and eventually into Europe and Asia and Africa and, and you control the whole world and you're the monarch. But then you die. What's the value of your soul? It's only a place, this body is only the place that houses a soul it's eternal. 
And God gives us a soul, and the Bible says uh, that at the death, in Mark 8.36, it says, For what shall a prophet man have to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And then it says in Ecclesiastes, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit return unto God that gave it. And I'm afraid if we're not careful, we place all importance upon our bodies. Matthew says, And fear not them which kill the body, and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When it talks about destroy both soul and body in hell, it's not annihilation, but it's ruin. It's to render useless, to be lost. And so if I have all this and, and my body's well taken care of and I've enjoyed all that I want and I've not kept from my heart desire anything, but in the end, when we die and our soul has not been redeemed, we've not repented of our sins and trusted Jesus Christ, then they've lost everything. If you, uh, let me see how much time I have. I'm chasing, chasing lots of rabbits this morning. Uh, if you look at the great white throne judgment, which is a judgment, of, uh, a judgment for, for sinners, as opposed to the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment for Christians. Well, the great right throne judgment, it says that, that uh, it talks about being there, and it, it uses the language that uh, the earth, that, that, that it fled away, that they're brought to this place, and it's uh, some place that God has appointed, but heaven and earth flees away. And it says, oh, it says, oh, they've died and they've been buried and their souls are kept in a place called Hades. But one day, death and hell is going to give up that which is in them. And they're going to, they're going to be at the great white throne judgment. And then they're going to be cast into a place called the lake of fire, which is different from Hades. And they're going to live there forever. And it seems as though they might think, well, you know, as they've been brought to the great white throne judgment, after being in in hell or Hades at a holding place, that they might think, hey, maybe, maybe there's going to be a reprieve. But actually, they've went from the correctional center waiting for trial to go to the penitentiary. And, and, uh, and they think, maybe, it's going to, maybe something will happen. But when they turn and look, heaven and earth's fleeting away. Everything that they had, everything that they put hope in, Every possibility to maybe things will change has been taken away. And we know that all that's going to melt in fervent heat. And just imagine their, their spirit. Just imagine the thoughts of their soul. All is lost. It's destroyed. Not annihilated, but all hope is gone. And so... To reject Jesus Christ is a serious thing. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. To not personally commit your soul to God for salvation is to be eternally lost. Jude describes it this way. Raging waves of the sea, 
foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars, wandering stars, they actually are stars that don't revolve around any planet system. They're just wandering stars who's reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What a description, the blackness of darkness. Don't think you're going to sit down next to your buddy in hell. He goes on in that. In, in, um, in Matthew, and he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, or what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, and what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek you first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I'm simply saying that your soul is important. And so he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I wonder today if you were at the point of death that you would be willing and have the heart to uh, commit yourself in that walk through the valley of the shadow of death totally unto the Lord. I want you to go with me into the book of Job 19, and I'll close with this. As you know, uh, last week uh, I was not here on Sunday and I wasn't here Wednesday either. I went to the funeral of my brother in um, Eastern Oregon. He was a Christian man. And my uh, brother's son-in-law I spent a lot of time with him at the end, and he told me this story. Some of the family was there in the hospital room, and uh, John, my, bro my, my brother's brother-in-law, son-in-law, was holding his hand, and my brother was breathing really strong. And Johnny, my brother's son-in-law told the rest of them, he, he said, I don't, you know, I don't think that he's going to die very soon. He may be a couple more days because he's breathing really good. And uh, Johnny had to go over to Home Depot for a while to, to buy something. And he told my brother, I have to go. I'll see you later. And when he said that, a tear rolled down my brother's cheek. Johnny said he took a Kleenex and wiped it off. His breathing immediately dropped off. 
And he said to Johnny, see you later. And he died within a couple of hours. The assured knowledge that there's life after death, the assured knowledge that they would meet again, both of them Christian men. You see, sometimes we look at these subjects and we, we, we try to keep them in the compartment of our brain, which is informational. When God wants us to keep it in the apartment of our brain, which is emotional and spiritual and eternal. Jesus said that he commended his spirit unto the Father. He'd done his work. He'd already said it is finished. And there is life after death. And we need to make sure that we're prepared for it. You're dismissed.